Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Merry Christmas Eve. Take a stool. We're here for the second installment of our end-of-the-year Three Martini Lunch Awards. The Crystal Martinis are being handed out three awards in each of our final six episodes of 2019. If you weren't with us on Monday, we went through the most overrated, underrated, and honest political figures of 2019. And now it's time for three more categories. And as Jim explained yesterday, we know the categories. We don't know the choices that each other has made in these categories. So we generally try to have a couple in mind just in case uh, the other one comes up with that choice first. But our categories today are political figure we're sorry to see go, as well as rising political star and political figure fading into oblivion. So, Jim, Merry Christmas Eve. Let's start off on the somber side. Who's the political figure you're most sorry to see go? Well, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, Greg, you and I always pick two just in case we end up picking the same one. Um, I'm going to give my second one uh, after you give yours, because if he does, if, if neither one of us picked him, this, this other figure deserves to be noted. But uh, I was going over figures who had died in 2019. And I, I surprised I actually had missed this, the news of this person's passing. Patrick Cadell, the pollster, uh, who people may remember being a ubiquitous Fox News presence. He joined us on a National Review cruise a couple of years ago. And boy, in addition to everybody enjoying him on television, his insight, his wit, his intellect, his ability to really get down to the, the nub of what people were thinking and feeling about American politics. Um, boy, this guy just had people eaten out of his hand. Uh, he, he went to about a guy who could bring a, a crowd of National Review readers on a cruise ship to their feet. Now, let me tell you, Greg, we have an older older audience. They don't get up to their feet easily anymore. There's a lot of creaking and cracking and all that kind of stuff. Just, just a warm guy, a smart guy, very insightful in the way he looked at things. Um, and boy, when he wanted to get people fired up, he could do it. And he, and he always kind of seemed like this, you know, somewhat gruff or grumbly figure. But man, when he got a, a bone to pick or he had something that, you know, fired, he got him fired up, he, could, he had this like palpable enthusiasm and passion. Uh, that other people could could very quickly was almost uh, uh, spread virally uh, through the entire room. So I'm um, sorry to see him go. Uh, I'm sure he is a, a you know the uh, a remarkable figure. And, you know, started out as a, on the left side of the aisle, um, but I think a lot of people were you know surprised to see him go this early and uh, a figure who will be missed in the in the political scene. Yeah, and Pat Cadell. In some years, uh, maybe back in 2016, for example, would have certainly been a good nominee for most honest political figure. The guy was a Democrat, was kind of the boy genius uh, uh, wizard of the 76 Jimmy Carter campaign. And for many years, conservatives uh, weren't real fond of him because they weren't real fond of the four years they got from Jimmy Carter. But as time went on, uh, Pat Goodell became more and more comfortable speaking truth to his own party. And uh, by 2016, he was explaining why Trump had an audience, uh, why there was uh, frustration with the status quo and some of these establishment figures in both parties and just where his party, he thought, was going way too far left. He was kind of a a more moderate uh, type Democrat from back in uh, the 60s and 70s era, although there were plenty of liberals back then, too. He definitely uh, was willing to say things that most other Democrats didn't want to hear. So. Uh, definitely going to miss Pat Cadell. Jim, I'm quite confident you're not going to uh, repeat my choice here. So who is your second one? David Koch. One half of the notorious Koch brothers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you went to those conferences uh, a number of years. And uh, we've talked about some of the issues that they were able to uh, 
get uh, momentum going towards, and he was uh, able to live to see the uh, First Step Act uh, approved late last year, and criminal justice reform was one of their big things. We always heard more from Charles and from David. We knew he'd had health issues, but uh, he will be missed. No doubt. No doubt. All right, Jim, yesterday I was pretty tough on Pete Buttigieg, and I believe rightly so, but I hope I didn't leave the impression that I thought poorly of mayors in small towns. As good conservatives, we ought to believe that most decisions should be made closest to the people impacted by those decisions, and that means uh, putting a lot of uh, influence in local governments. I grew up in the small town of Iron Mountain, Michigan, which is at this point, probably most famous for being the hometown of Michigan State basketball coach Tom Izzo. But when I was a kid, we had a great mayor for several years who did a great deal to help the city. After a few years on the city council, he ran for mayor and won his campaign for mayor. Once in office, he led an effort to rewrite the city charter and bring it up to date for modern times. He uh, guarded the taxpayers' dollars as frugally as he guarded his own, but still managed to spearhead major economic growth in town and undertake badly needed infrastructure upgrades. He chose not to run again after six years as mayor, realizing that was enough. And after all, that's not exactly a profitable enterprise in a small town, and he had a business to run. Then last decade, when he discovered local leaders were being dishonest with the public and had the city on the brink of bankruptcy, he got involved again. He recruited good candidates to run and even ran again himself when no one else uh, in his part of the city would do it. He served on the city council for another five years and worked with others to put the city on solid financial footing for years to come. And once that job was done, he stepped down again. Now, as Jim knows, and as many of our listeners know, I've buried the lead here. Everything I just told you is true, but that mayor was Ted Corumbus. He was my dad. I have wonderful memories of going door to door for him in that first campaign for mayor. And I'm immensely proud of what he accomplished as mayor. When he died in July, and I mentioned this back in the summer after I got back from the funeral, I loved hearing stories about his time in city government that I hadn't heard before, like when the local softball league came to the council and said it needed new lights. Could the city council dip into the emergency fund to pay for them? Dad ended the discussion by saying, I never saw a softball game that was an emergency. But, but as much as I admire his public service... His greatest legacy, of course, was as a son, a husband of 50 years to my mom, a fantastic, loving dad who was just a thrill to speak with on so many subjects, and he had a fantastic dry wit that was just endless. So uh, also a guy, of course, who adored his grandchildren. It's very hard not to have him with us anymore, especially at the holidays, but I am immensely proud to be his son. Greg, I can't think of a better choice. Um... I uh, I think you know you stand as one of his great legacies, and uh, dads are dads are irreplaceable. So I'm sure there are a lot of people both here and over in Michigan who are missing him at the time at this time of year. Thank you, Jim, and I also want to thank you for your flexibility, particularly with the schedule for the podcast. As I made a number of trips back to Michigan earlier this year. All right, let's get on to a happier fare here, Jim, as we move on to a rising political star here in 2019. I have a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach that we have the same choice, and I don't really have a good backup, so who do you have? Okay, well, let's say Elise Stefanik. Go for it. So obviously, look, Elise Stefanik has been in the House from the Republican side, representing, uh, uh, you know, kind of, ironically, a once pretty Democratic leaning, but I think we can now say a very Trumpy district up in New York State, uh, working class, uh, all that stuff. But I, I'm going to make a point. So she really turned into a star in the impeachment process. Um, look, there aren't a lot of young women 
in, in the House Republican Caucus. Um, Stefanik is smart. She is tough. She is feisty. She knows her stuff. There are a lot of times when you can kind of tell a House Republican is trying to put up a defense for Trump in this impeachment process, and they're kind of, uh, you don't have the facts on your side, you don't have the, you know, argue the law, you don't have the law on your side, argue the, argue the facts, and if you don't have either, just pound the table. There are some House Republicans who are basically pounding the table through this whole process. At least Stefanik knows what she's talking about and has done the homework and makes the arguments uh, that make the Adam Schiff's of the world shift uncomfortably in their seats. Um, but I want to make one, share another example. I think I may have shared this on the podcast once before, but this time I'm going to name names. It is early in the 2012 presidential cycle. Republicans are getting ready to run for office. And uh, the argument had been that, look, Obama at that time looked so weak, a generic Republican could beat him. And luckily for Republicans, Tim Pawlenty was running. And they, you know, <laughs> Republicans don't get much more generic than that. Tim Pawlenty, I love you. Please don't uh, take that the wrong way. But among his uh, folks who were hired to work on his campaign was uh, a gentleman named Patrick Hines. He's a fine, fine guy. He's been a Republican consultant. Talked to him for stories going back years and years. And uh, they said, look, Pelani's going to run for president, but we want to we want to keep it under wraps until the announcement day. We will let you have an advanced conversation, um, an advanced interview on the record. We can You can run the transcript, do anything you want. Uh, but we just got to we're going to embargo it for those who don't know the familiarity with this in journalism. When there's an embargo on a story, you're allowed to do everything you can, but you can't publish it until a particular time. And I think the embargo they wanted was like 10 days or something like that. It was a really long stretch. And I was like, ah, OK, all right, I'll do it. And I do the interview and it goes fine. You know, Palendi's answers are, are going great. One of the few interesting angles was that uh, Michelle Bachman was also running. So how are you going to do with the, somebody else from Minnesota in the state running in for president, blah, blah, blah. The interview goes fine. Sometime between the interview date and Polenti's official announcement, Matt Lewis runs it. I'm naming names today. <laughs> Matt Lewis really cheesed me off that day. Uh, so I reach out to the aide on the Polenti campaign to say, hey, I agreed to this and it was a stupid rule and I was stupid to agree with this. There was no way everybody else was going to honor this. Now I got to put my article up and it's pretty much all the same kind of questions and all the same kind of answers that Matt Lewis put up on his so now I look stupid, like I'm just running the same thing that he did because I decided to agree with your rules. I can't believe it. I just ripped into this campaign staffer, this young campaign staffer named Elise Stefanik. <laughs> um, the lesson of this is that, you know, don't be like Jim. Don't lose your temper and don't yell at people because you never know when the person you yell into might become a congresswoman. Uh, thankfully, Elise Stefanik does not hold grudges. And I, I tweeted her at one point say, hey, I remember that. Sorry about that. And she's like, ha ha, don't worry about it, you know. Uh, and I haven't been audited or anything like that. So, um, but, you know, like, again, like just an observation about somebody who uh, was always very bright and really not that long ago in a very junior position, who is now indisputably, I would say, one of the great rising stars of the Republican Party and conservative movement. My choice for the uh, rising star of 2019. That's a really good choice. Yeah, she really stood out. Uh, she was uh, what? Because one of the things in these hearings is uh, people who love to go off on rants and they don't necessarily spend a lot of time talking about facts in these congressional hearings. And uh, she was passionate, but she was very much focused on the substance of the issue and where Adam Schiff and his allies were falling short on actually backing up their claims and so many other things. But uh, yeah, Elise Stefanik is. Uh, Definitely entering 2020 in a different political posture than she uh, entered 2019 uh, as a result of her work on the Intelligence Committee and those public 
hearings uh, related to impeachment. Uh, Jim, my choice is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. This is a guy oh, who's what did I think of that one? Choice. <laughs> been around a long time, uh, relatively speaking. He spent uh, a few terms in Congress. I'm not sure if it was three or four. You might remember when Marco Rubio insisted while he was running for president that he would not, if he didn't win the nomination, run for Senate again. DeSantis jumped in. Then Rubio didn't win the nomination and uh, figured, well, I think I do want to run for re-election. DeSantis jumped back into the House race. Well, in 2018, with uh, Rick Scott deciding to run for Senate against uh, Bill Nelson, uh, DeSantis decided to jump in for governor. And DeSantis had been a very reliable conservative congressman. But you're wondering, you know, this is a a pretty uh, even state. It's kind of a purple state. Republicans do fairly well here. Trump did win, but it was narrow. Uh, But it's it's a 2018 midterm. It's kind of a reflection on Trump. The polls aren't looking good in other places. Can a guy who's that conservative uh, do well in a statewide election in this political climate? And he was running against a guy named Andrew Gillum, who uh, had an FBI investigation into him. But that didn't stop the mainstream media from absolutely loving this guy. In fact, he was an upset winner in the Democratic primary. And so these two are going head to head. Couldn't have been more diametrically opposite in their positions on virtually every issue. In the end, it's razor tight. It ends up going down into a recount, and we got Brenda Snipes and Broward with her ridiculously uh, messed up uh, vote counting process there. But finally, we find out that by, I don't remember what it was, even maybe 30,000 votes, Ron DeSantis squeaks out this win as a governor of Florida. And immediately after getting sworn in in January, all of a sudden, this guy is making decisions that make just about everybody in Florida happy. He fires Scott Israel as the sheriff in Broward County. Broward County has a lot of problems with their elected officials. Uh, so he's gone. Uh, he had the opportunity to appoint three justices to the state Supreme Court, and all of them uh, are solid, respectable, solid conservative justices. He went on a very pragmatic approach to cleaning up the Everglades, not one of these uh, climate change knee-jerk type of agendas, but just common sense ways to do it. Uh, He is uh, trying to push the envelope on school choice, which is one of the reasons he ended up actually winning in 2018. Got a much bigger share of the uh, vote of African-American women than uh, anybody else running for statewide office. And if you look at his approval ratings, Jim, he's above 50 percent with everyone, regardless of political persuasion, regardless of race, regardless of anything. His approval rating, depending on the polls, anywhere in the high 60s to mid 70s, which is insane. Now, it's uh, it's a competitive state, and I'm sure the media and others will find ways to ding him by the time he runs for reelection in 2022. But right now, uh, just about everything politically that he touches is turning into gold. We'll see how long it can last. But this is a guy who's conservative, but also with a pragmatic touch. And right now, it seems to be working great in Florida. Chris, well, I want to make one last point on Elise Stefanik and the, your comment about uh, how the impeachment hearings are going. There's nobody worse than somebody who rants, Greg. <laughs> But you have substance to your rant. You have substance to your rant. Thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) You know, the secret to good conservative governance is to figure out what you can do to push policy in a more conservative direction that isn't going to antagonize a whole lot of voters. Like if, if we're honest, conservatism isn't always going to be the most popular idea because we're running against the free ice cream party, right? (laughs) Conservatives, you have you, you have to pay for that. Uh, the government isn't going to handle that job very well. Government can't do everything for you. And the other, the Democrats are usually running free ice cream. We'll just tax the rich. It'll all be great. But also the question like, okay, what, you know, what things aren't really ideological, i.e. competence. Let's say there's a really incompetent sheriff in Broward County you need to get rid of or something. <laughs> you know, what can you do that is not in the usual traditional 
political ideological spectrum that will, you know, reassure people that you've got good judgment and you know what you're doing and, and all of that. So, you know, just to, just to, he's doing it very smart so far. It's early in his term. Uh, still a lot of road ahead, but you got to figure he's got a good shot at reelection and, uh, you know, maybe a role model for governors across the country. No, absolutely right. And uh, competence and constituent service will get you a long, long way. You sometimes wonder why some of these people you disagree with vehemently uh, politically in fairly competitive states constantly get reelected. I remember growing up in Michigan, Carl Levin got reelected by massive margins over and over again in Michigan, tilted Democrat, but not by the margins he was winning. It's because he had fantastic constituent service. So if you respond to the people who have concerns and get answers to their problems and solve them, just dealing with a different bureaucracy that'll never make the headlines, people remember that more than your specific position on a lot of issues. And uh, it looks like Ron DeSantis is doing that. And that's a good lesson for a lot of people. All right. On to fading into oblivion. I had a lot more ideas here, Jim, so I'm (laughs) confident we won't overlap. Who do you have? Sure. I, I'm very tempted to go with Jeremy Corbyn, um, <laughs> yes. who I hope we just never hear from again. Um, but I went with, I, I hinted to this yesterday. I went with Mark Sanford. Um, you want to talk about a, a political career that has had some very unexpected twists and turns. Your classic fiscal conservative down there in South Carolina, two terms as governor. People, a lot of people seem to think because of the infamous Appalachian Trail scandal that he'd resigned. Actually, he didn't. He served out the rest of his term. But I think it was safe to say uh, that, you know, uh, after once making a mark for himself as a uh, conservative House member, then a conservative governor down in the Palmetto State, that this was, you know, well, OK, there you're never going to hear from this guy again. And then a few years later, you did. Um, and Mark Sanford, it's an exaggeration to call him as a family friend. But, you know, my dad has been active in Republican politics down in uh, uh, the Hilton Head area, not as a candidate or anything, but mostly as a volunteer and party you know, coordinator and all that kind of stuff. And he got to know Mark Sanford. The one time in my life I've ever had to issue a disclaimer saying that uh, my father was listed as a, you know, someone who had formally endorsed someone as with Mark Sanford's campaign uh, running for running for the House. He was kind enough, and I have no illusions about this, to give me one of the first interviews when he decided to run for the House. And he won back his seat in part by being very uh, bluntly honest, almost maybe even painfully honest about how he had, you know, loused up his marriage, uh, caused so much embarrassment to himself and to his state. And, you know, I think there are a lot of Americans and, you know, a lot of folks in South Carolina. Look, you know, even if it's not up to that usual 50%, a lot of marriages end up in divorce. A lot of people end up having their marriages not work out. From all appearances, it looked like Mark Sanford and Jenny Sanford were attempting to try to have this be as amicable and functional a separation and divorce as possible to put the interests of their kids ahead and um, Mark Sanford was comfortable talking about any of this stuff. And the interesting thing was voters in South Carolina's first congressional district didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> like, no, that's fine. We Stop talking about it. That's fine. We forgive you. You know, uh, he ran against uh, the sister of Stephen Colbert, won back his seat. And uh, like, oh, you know, there, there's a part of me that liked that story. Right. You know, we're all going to make terrible mistakes in life. And it's kind of reassuring to know that, you know, you you can be more in life than your worst moment and your worst mistake in life goes back to the House. Um, as you mentioned yesterday, Mark Sanford was not ready to jump on board with the Trump train, uh, was still concerned about the deficit and debts and other issues that I think have been de-emphasized in Republican circles and all that stuff. His challenger in 2018, Katie Arrington, made this basically tried to turn the primary into a referendum on loyalty to Trump. And lo and behold, she won. Uh, it was not a huge romp. It was like something, you know, 50 to 46 or something like that. It was, it was you know, but it was enough to uh, win the nomination for that. And Mark Sanford sat on the sidelines in the general election. 
This angered the heck out of a whole bunch of conservatives in uh, uh, in South Carolina, including quite a few with the last name Garrity. And this, uh, I think, pretty much ended any hope he had of ever winning back that seat. Um, he really came across as a sore loser and all that stuff. And he ran for president this year uh, for a couple of months. He, he barely got any attention. It was really kind of like, it looked like at one point it was going to be a single issue uh, campaign. And I think it's safe to say it's a single issue that whether or, you know, I think Americans and Republicans should care more about the deficit and the debt, but they don't. And I don't really know what Mark Sanford thought he was going to do by running that presidential campaign. So uh, he can't go back to his congressional district. He's not going to win the state. He's not running for president. I don't know what Mark Sanford's going to do with his life. I don't think he will be making anywhere near the impact he did than in years past. It's weird. Uh, unusual guy, always kind of marched the beat of his own drummer. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think the sun has set on, on one of the oddest careers in both South Carolina politics and, you could argue, national politics. Yeah, I think that's uh, true, that he's probably uh, done being a prominent player on, on the national stage. And uh, it's almost entirely self-inflicted, uh, both with the very public uh, demise of his marriage and then, as, as you said, uh, sitting out the, the general election for 2018. Now, had Arrington actually won, uh, maybe more would have been forgiven. But uh, even then, uh, it seems like uh, the district and, and the state were ready to move on. From him, not just because they're more Trumpy than he is, but uh, just because they're they're tired of Mark Sanford, uh, I, I guess. But uh, I did appreciate his uh, attention to the debt, uh, as we talked about yesterday. Uh, not a lot of reaction to it, and it didn't get a lot of oxygen anyway. So, uh, Jim, I'm going to uh, pick a figure from uh, this year who was uh, talked about a lot more in the first few months of the year than in here towards the end of it. As you well know, there are three billionaires currently running for president of the United States prominently. You got Donald Trump, you got Michael Bloomberg, you got Tom Steyer. But for a little while earlier this year, you had Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, who was about as woke as they get on social issues, but a more moderate, didn't think that Medicare for all or a lot of these other creeping towards socialism or lurching towards socialism ideas on economic or other uh, national issues was a good way to go, was uh, thinking about running for president. And at a time when basically every person on the left was jumping in and the media was like, yeah, come on in, come on in, come on in. Howard Schultz says, yeah, I'm thinking about doing this, but I'm not going to do it as a Democrat if I do it. I'll do it as an independent and you could hear the needle getting ripped off the record and the screeching breaks of the media. And instantly, he was pariah number one, because if he does this, he's probably going to take votes away from Democrats and that'll help Trump. How dare you, sir? So then after doing a, a lot of media, uh, I think he ran into a couple uh, health issues. I'm not sure what the severity of those were, but uh, ultimately he quietly decided not to do it. Uh, his time at Starbucks is over. I'm guessing there won't be any future forays into presidential or other politics since uh, neither party's all that excited about him at this point anymore. Uh, and I don't know what impact he would have had on the race, but he faded into oblivion, I think, in March or April and has, still hasn't come up for air. And I'm guessing he's probably not going to anytime soon. So Howard Schultz is my choice for 2019. That's a really good choice uh, there, Greg, because you know he's, this is a guy who allegedly had a, um, a back injury. And look, you know, I know about you every week. I check the, uh, the the rosters, the injured reserve list, who's not running for president because of that. Uh, trainers were working on him on the sideline, but it just didn't seem to work out for him. Um, there were parts of him that I could live with. Like, you know, guy rose from rags to riches, uh, didn't inherit much of anything from his folks. And, and if there's any area of agreement with Howard Schultz, is he talked about how for a lot of young people, that first job is a transformative moment in their life. You know, for whatever reason, 
school hasn't been doing it for them. They don't seem all that excited by, about it. And all of a sudden, they put the, you, know, you put them behind the, you know, the, 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 the counter at Starbucks. And all of a sudden, they're in the customer service industry. And all of a sudden, they have responsibilities. And they realize they're good at something. And they realize they can handle the crush of the morning commuters coming in and stuff like that. There was all of a sudden, you know, there were areas where I could look at Howard Kurtz and say, yeah, I, I agree with that stuff. The reaction to the Democratic Party, I thought was extremely illuminating. And I think you're right. I think this was an indication that, you know, maybe there, there may be a day in the future where the uh, Democratic Party is more open to billionaire entrepreneurs uh, running on their ticket. But uh, this wasn't it. And it doesn't look like they'll be ready anytime soon. We'll find out. Jim, in the meantime, tomorrow's Christmas. We will not have a podcast on Christmas, so enjoy that time with your family and friends. We'll be back on Thursday with a brand new series of year-end awards for the Three Martini Lunch. So to all our listeners, and of course to you, Jim, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Greg. Merry Christmas to all. Tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.